0: Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensy.com. Good morning church. Happy Palm Sunday to each of you. Uh, and one week from today is Easter. And, uh, let's see, we're looking for 40 people to come to the sunrise service. And survey said, 47. Yeah. So 47 people will possibly be very cold <laughs> a week from today, but uh, we're gonna have a good time together. So what that means is that for the rest of you that'll be coming here, this room will have a lot more room. And we're doing that for a reason, and that is so you can invite whoever you would like. And uh, my, my promise to you is that we are going to, straight down the middle, uh, just this easy softball, preach the gospel and tell people about the good news that Jesus is risen and that anyone can have life in Christ. That's what you're going to hear next Sunday. And bring whoever you would like to come and hear that message, and they will, they will be edified and encouraged. My name is Michael. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, glad you're here with us. And uh, we're doing a series through the Gospel of Luke, and we're in the middle of the book, and uh, currently looking at a teaching block where Jesus is teaching. And today, the story that we're looking at is the story of uh, the rich young ruler. And this is a story about a religious man, and he he, he followed all the rules. He did everything right, but he had an idol. He had a heart problem. He had a love of money, and that kept him from entering into the kingdom. And so the lesson of the story is this that we're going to talk about. To follow Jesus, you've got to surrender everything to Him. You have to surrender everything to Jesus and not hold anything back to be a disciple. So to be saved, your love and your devotion to God has to surpass your love for anything else. And that's impossible. But in God's strength and in God's power, it is possible because He enables us to do so. That's what we're looking at today. Well, if you got a Bible, we're in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, and we're going to start in verse 18. Luke 18, verse 18. We'll just take it, take it a section at a time. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept for my youth. So let's start out here. Jesus uh, was approached by this ruler, and he started off by saying, good teacher, so that phrase got jesus's attention and it's a clue about this man's attitude toward jesus in luke's gospel there's a bit of a pattern where people the way they address jesus gives us some indication of their disposition towards him so the followers of jesus his disciples they usually called him master but his opponents and the pharisees and this rich young ruler call him teacher and that is, that's not the same as master, right? So at the very least, this rich young girl he's not a disciple. He's not a follower of Jesus. And yet he's calling him good teacher. And the fact that he's calling him good is probably meant to flatter him, meant to butter him up. And so he's, he's trying to, to work an angle here as he approaches Jesus. Now, Jesus responds by saying, no one is good, but God alone. So why do you call me Good. No one is good. No one is good except God alone. Now, Jesus is not denying his own goodness, and Jesus is not denying his own divinity. A lot of times people, whenever they see this verse, those are little trip hazards that they stumble over. They think that, well, is Jesus not saying he's God or is Jesus saying he's not good? No, Jesus is speaking um, rhetorically to, to, to communicate something to him. So he's not denying his deity, not denying his goodness. Rather, he's speaking in this way. There's two reasons, and these are, it's, these are the, here are the two reasons. First, he wants to redirect his attention to God because he's looking to Jesus as merely a teacher, right? So he's directing his attention to God, saying, why do you call me good? Nobody's good but God alone. He's saying, God is the standard. God is the source of all goodness. There is no good apart from God. That's the first reason. And the second reason is to correct this rich ruler's overly simplistic view of goodness. So whenever he's thinking of goodness, he's focusing on the externals. He's focusing on the rule keeping. And, and how well he has done at keeping those rules. Now that's not evident yet, but it will be evident as we go through this story. So as we'll see in a moment, the rich young ruler is judging goodness by a human standard, a mere human standard. And for this reason, he's not able to recognize his own sin. That's his problem. He's not able to recognize his own sin. He's not able to recognize that he is in need of grace. Now, Second part of the question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's what's on his mind. So what's on his mind is the most fundamental question of human experience. What happens after I die? Or how do I live forever? Or... How do i have a good afterlife or how do i have eternal life or how do i enter into the kingdom of god these are all similar ideas that reflect what his what's really motivating him what he's trying to get at now notice that the way he asks the question that lets us know what he's thinking it clues us in right we already what he already thinks he knows the answer He's saying, what must I do? That's the word. What must I do? He did not say, how can I have eternal life? How might I receive eternal life? Because that's looking beyond himself. He's saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he's thinking, it's up to me. There's some act I need to perform, some ritual, some prayer, some incantation, some good work. I've got to do something in order to inherit eternal life. And so what Jesus does is he answers his question on his terms. If you want to know what you must do to inherit eternal life, there you go. And Jesus goes on to quote five of the Ten Commandments. And by quoting five, that's not meant like, well, those are the only five that matter. that's, That's synonymous with this is a representative sample. But he's referring to the whole Ten Commandments and the whole Old Testament law. So he's saying, you follow these and you'll have eternal life so if you think that you know where where does that come from well let's let's look at leviticus leviticus 18 verses 4 and 5 so this rich ruler being a good jewish man he would have read this he would have been familiar with it most likely and this is god speaking you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them so that's what you have to do i am the lord your god you shall therefore here it is again Keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, if a person does them, he shall live by them. I'm the Lord. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Rich young man. There it is. Leviticus 18 verse 4. You keep God's rules, his statutes, his laws. You walk by them. You obey them perfectly. You're all set. That's what you need to do. So a Jewish man who believes in God, who knows the law, should immediately recognize something very important. And that is he hasn't kept the law, right? So if any one of you was saying like, what, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you know the 10 commandments, right? You, uh, you keep all the 10 commandments perfectly from, from birth to the grave, I'll see you in heaven. Now immediately you would know, oh my goodness, I'm in trouble because I am far from perfect. There's it's like that means I've never lied. I'm like, a lot of people can't can't, you know, escape the first three years of their life without telling a lie. But you've never stolen anything. Again, any three year old kid is stealing toys from other kids. I mean, just there's we're we're racked with sin all through our lives. But that's that's the reality. He's saying like if you don't do this perfectly, then you will live. That's what the law says. The law gives you the standard, and the standard is God's own holiness, God's own perfection. That is the standard. If you meet that standard, then you can have eternal life. So the law tells us that standard, and it is God's own goodness, God's own perfection, God's own perfect righteousness. And anytime time we look at that standard, we should immediately recognize that we all fall short of it. Now, when we're looking to ourselves as the standard or somebody else as a standard, well, then maybe we're not doing so bad. Maybe we can find some loopholes and some ways to think about it where we could be like, you know, I think I'm doing all right. If you're looking at a mere human standard, you'll find a way probably to justify yourself. But when you look at God, And when you look at God's perfection, God's standard, God's law, God's holiness, when you are looking at God, that's when you're able to see the fullness of your own need, the depth of your sin and depravity, and you are desperate, hopeless, and you know there's nothing you can do. So by showing us our sin, the law drives us to look to God for grace. It is God's law that we've fallen short of. It is God's standard that we violated. Therefore, it has to be God himself that we look to to give us absolution. If we're going to be forgiven, it's got to come from God because his is the ultimate standard that we've broken. St. Augustine said this. He said, the law bids us as we try to fulfill its requirements and become wearied in our weakness under it to know how to ask the help of grace. So there's three uses of the law. Um, this is the first use of the law, to show us our need. That is the first use. And on the rich young ruler's case, it didn't work. You would think it would, but it didn't work in his case, because he was a proud, hard-hearted man who thought that he actually did keep the law. Verse 21, it says, Jesus... I've been doing all this since I'm a little kid. I'm set, bro. I'm good, I'm straight, no, no problem. I've been doing this since a little boy. And his biggest problem is that he assumes that he can accomplish it himself, that he has what it takes to meet the standard, to meet the requirement. So he isn't looking to God as a giver of salvation, rather he's looking to himself and to his own effort, what must I do, He's looking to himself to accomplish and earn his own salvation. Now here's a fact. No one gets saved until they first realize that they're lost. I remember hearing a guy guy say this years ago. He said, you can't get them saved until you get them lost. And a lot of people think that they're fine. A lot of people think, you know, God accepts me as I am. God has no standard. God is a pushover. Um, God just loves me just as I am. He, I'm the apple of his eye. And so there isn't any need to repent. There isn't really any sin to confess. I'm fine. And that's a way of saying, I have accomplished what I need to accomplish. I have met the standard. And God has really, 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 really low standards. And that's what they think. But what Scripture teaches us, what we're seeing in this text here, the one in Leviticus, is that until we see that we're sinful, then we'll we'll never be able to be saved. That's why it's important for Christians to preach the law whenever we're talking to unbelievers. Now, I don't mean necessarily pull out the book of Leviticus, but we do need to talk about the fact that there is a standard that we've fallen short of. The good news isn't good until they first recognize the bad news of their own sin and their own need. That is exactly what Jesus is doing here. Man, I can't talk today. Jesus? Who's Jesus? <laughs> until we first recognize that we don't meet the standard, then we're not going to look to God to show us a path forward. So even when we're talking to unbelievers about the gospel, it doesn't do them it, it is an insufficient gospel presentation to say. God, uh, Jesus loves you and wants you to be a follower of Him. Become a Christian. God, God has grace for you. Grace for what? For your sin. What sin? Well, okay. Now you've got to. Now you have to have the uncomfortable part of the conversation, because there has to be some recognition of a of a of a standard that we've fallen short of before anybody will come to Christ. So this man doesn't know he's a sinner. And whenever Jesus quoted the law, this man should have immediately recognized his inability to keep it, but he is so blinded by his pride that he thinks he's fine. He's like, I'm good to go. So rather than looking to God to save him, he thinks he's done enough to merit salvation. Did you notice he said, all these I have kept. I've done enough. I have met the mark, Jesus. I have crossed the threshold. I've never lied, I've never stolen, I've always honored my parents. Now, a hard-hearted man will bend and twist God's law and redefine sin and righteousness into his own image in order to avoid repentance. We want to have eternal life. Every one of us wants that. I don't know anybody that would say they don't want to live forever and eternal happiness and bliss. But if the path to that is repentance of things that I don't want to repent of, to to humble myself and acknowledge that I don't have it altogether, to say I have fallen short of God's perfect standard. Well, now we've got a problem because a lot of people don't want to do that. But if they want to somehow find a way to still claim that they have eternal life and that they're saved, well, what they have to do is they have to twist the law of God to suit themselves to where somehow they do actually meet the standard. That's our world. That's That's modern rebellious Christianity for a lot of Christians who want to deny that there is a standard. They want to say, What's grace, 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 without acknowledging that there is a standard that we've fallen short of, and to follow Christ, we have to repent of our sin. So, a man who redefines sin and righteousness in this way can never be saved because he has made himself the standard of righteousness, he's his own standard. The Apostle Paul says this, Now to the one who works, referring to good works, earning your own salvation, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So think of it this way. If a person is looking to themselves and saying, I've met the standard, I'm good enough. I don't really have anything to repent of, I'm all set and that person is saying that person would not receive salvation as a gift because it's not a gift it's they've earned it so they said that you owe me that god that's my due you owe me eternal life because i did what i did I, I did what i was supposed to do and what paul is talking about here is that that's that is the problem with this works mindset that the rich young ruler has he's thinking i work And therefore, because I've met the standard, my wage is eternal life. I've earned it. What must I do? Well, tell me what I need to do. I'll go out and do it. I will have earned it. Then you will owe eternal life to me, Jesus. But a humble person who is a true Christian, they don't receive it as a wage and not as a due. They receive it as a gift. And that's what Paul goes on to say, into the one who does not work, but believes in him. That's a faith in Jesus Christ. You put all your hope and confidence in him and what he's done. Believes in him who justifies the ungodly. That's you and that's me. We're ungodly. (laughs) If you didn't know that, well, I I hate to break it to you, but we are ungodly. We're sinful, we're fallen, we're rebellious, wicked, hard-hearted. And that's exactly the type of person that Jesus forgives. At least the ones who recognize it and acknowledge it and confess it. For that person, our faith is counted as righteousness. So the person who does perfectly well, they keep their nose clean, they keep all the rules, they obey, they're a good moral person. And if they don't confess their sin and repent and turn to God and say, I can't do this on myself, I need you to save me, that good person is not justified. They get what they deserve. Now, they think they deserve eternal life, but they don't. But they do get what they deserve, which is hell, condemnation. Now, for those of us who recognize that we're sinful, we're fallen, we're greedy, we're liars, we're adulterers, we're murderers, we bear false witness, we steal, we're idolaters. Now, for those of us that we recognize that's who we really are, and we say, Jesus, I confess this to you, this is sin. I, this is wrong, and I repent of this sin. Now, we have an ungodly person whose faith in Jesus, we believe in him, is counted as righteousness. Jesus looks at you, sinner that you are in me, and says, you are righteous. Not because you've earned it but because you've cast your faith upon the one who is righteous and who did earn it, and yet he died an unjust death for our sake, so that we, through faith in him, we might be counted righteous through our faith in the one who is righteous. Anyone who thinks they're good enough is already condemned. Anyone who knows they're not good enough, that person is ready to be saved. Anybody who is burdened by sin, they know they need help. That person is ready to be saved if they will turn to Christ and repent of their sin and and follow him. They're ready to turn to God in faith and be justified. So here's Jesus talking to this self-righteous, hard-hearted, proud, rich man who thinks he's got it all together. And Jesus just told him, hey, you don't have it all together unless you've met the law of God perfectly. And he responded, nailed it, got that unlocked, Jesus. Anything else? So in order to save this man, he will first need to acknowledge his sin, right? His own failure to obey, and that's what Jesus does. To get through to this guy, Jesus needs to humble him and reveal his sin to him. Verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, "One thing you still lack. All right, you you think you're that good? Great. Well, let me tell you one thing that I'm not hearing, one thing that you're missing. Sell all that you have. Distribute it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. You'll be saved." And then come follow me. I'll be here for an hour. You go take care of that and come back and we'll see how you're doing. (laughs) Pretty simple, right? Jesus is telling him, hey, fella, you're not the baller you think you are. You don't see yourself very accurately. You're still missing something. And what Jesus did was he put his finger right on that idol. Here's your problem, rich young man right here, money, that's your problem. He's a lover of money. He wants it, he craves it, he worships it. And that actually reveals he's not so good at keeping the 10 commandments, is he? He's broken the first commandment, don't have any other gods before me. He's broken the 10th commandment, you shall not covet (laughs) your neighbor's property. So maybe you're not so good. Maybe you're not as good as you think you are. And the way to get you to say it is to not talk about it in the abstract, but to put some action on it. Let's put some wheels on this little illustration and see how you do. So knowing the power that money had over this man, Jesus called him to repentance with tangible steps of action. Sell your stuff, give your stuff, and come. Follow me. Sell it. Repent of your idol. Give it away. You have to renounce it completely, and then come, follow me. That's an invitation to become a disciple. Come, follow me. That Jesus said that to the fishermen, right? Whenever he said, "Put down your nets. Come and follow me," he's inviting him to come to be a disciple. I mean, that's a Jesus doesn't give everybody in the New Testament that sort of direct, blatant invitation. He said, "This man has eternal life." staring him in the face. It's me or it's your bank account. Now, if you, if you go and liquidate your assets, come follow me, you'll have eternal life. But if you don't, then it shows that you still have the idol of money. Before we move on, I want to deal with a textual issue here because some people misinterpret this verse and they, they turn it into kind of a Christian communism, Christian socialism, which is, oh, every, every Christian, what you need to do to be saved is to go sell everything. And then, then you can be a Christian. Some people who take this verse to mean that, that Jesus is teaching a universal command to every Christian, of some kind of Christian communism, people who teach that are twisting the Bible to serve a political agenda, because that is not what the Bible teaches. Jesus was addressing this man's particular issue, his particular sin, and that sin was keeping him from inheriting eternal life, which was the subject at hand. So let me give you five quick reasons why this text is not about Christian communism, all right? Five reasons why this is not about Christian communism, and You know, I probably wouldn't have said this, but I actually saw somebody post on Facebook or Twitter, something like, yeah, Jesus said, give all you had and give to the poor, then you could be a follower. They taught this, and I was like, man, I see this all the time. And then I knew this text was coming up, and I'm like, I want to talk about it. So five reasons. Number one, the Bible doesn't command it. The Bible never commands Christians to sell all they have, distribute to the poor before they can become a Christian. We're told to be generous to the poor, but that's an act of charity and good works, but that is not a precondition for becoming a Christian. Number two, private property ownership is part of the Old Testament law itself. So Christian communism is like you divest yourself of all your property and all your property is owned corporately, right? Either by the government or by the people, but you, you divest yourself of all your private property. But the, the Old Testament law itself presupposes private property. So, um, God calls us to be wise and generous stewards of our our property, but if there's no such thing as private ownership, then there's no need for the command, thou shalt not steal. Why not? It's yours anyway. It's not his, and somebody else can steal from you. Sure, why not? Because there's no private property. Number three, the Bible teaches the value of work and personal responsibility as the primary means through which we provide for ourselves. Work. Work personal responsibility. Those are the normal, typical means of provision. Number four, if everybody, if every Christian took this as a universal command, we'd all go bankrupt. So it would become an absurdity for every Christian to say, well, this is how you become a Christian. And number five, if Jesus taught this as a universal command, he would be undermining his own message that we can't save ourselves. So any Christian that says, "Well, you're not a true Christian because you you need to you need to sell all that you have and give to the poor and and all that," what they're saying is the opposite of what Jesus is teaching, which is you can't save yourself. Isn't that the point? You can't save yourself. So basically, you'd be saying, "Well, you can save yourself." Jesus is saying, "Okay, you've kept all the commandments, you've kept the law, but actually." all right, there's an 11th commandment. I'm going to give you a new one now. Here's an 11th commandment. Now you do the 11th commandment, then you can be saved. Sell everything, give it to the poor, then follow me. That's the 11th commandment. Now you can be saved. Well, no, he's, that would be putting it back on him as an act of works righteousness for him to save himself by giving all of his stuff away. So Jesus is not just adding a new really, really, really hard commandment as a new way to test people to, to make sure they're true followers or for them to be a follower at all. That's legalism. So the point is that Jesus was addressing his particular idol. This was his issue. It's an idol of money. And there's a deeper heart issue, most likely, of self-sufficiency. But Jesus was addressing his particular problem. This was the barrier preventing this man from inheriting eternal life. That's why Jesus brought it up. But Jesus didn't leave it there, right? He made the invitation. He said, come, follow me. It was, it, he didn't say, hey, get out of here and go sell all your stuff, you greedy jerk. No, he says, no, no, do this. That will demonstrate that you've repented of your particular idol. Then be my disciple, come, follow me. You will have eternal life. It was a hopeful promise. So he wasn't giving him a new command. He was telling him, don't trust in yourself anymore. Come and trust in me, come and be my disciple. Come follow me, and that's the invitation for every man and woman, every human being, men, women, forsake your idol or idols, surrender everything, and then come and follow Jesus. Well, how did he do? But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Why was he sad? Because he loved his wealth more than the salvation he was seeking. He was extremely rich. Now, if he was a poor guy with a $1.78 in his pocket, then to give it all away and come follow Jesus, he's like not giving up that much. But he was extremely rich. This is a powerful idol. This had a stranglehold on his soul. And he was sad because Jesus told him, you have to choose between your sin and salvation. You have to choose between God and your greed. You have to choose between your treasure on earth or your treasure in heaven. In Matthew's version of this story and Mark's version of the same story, there are little variations. But in those versions, it said he went, he, he went away sad. Not just he, he was sad, but it said he went away sad, meaning that he, he actually walked away. He turned, he was staring eternal life in the face, having a conversation with the very essence and giver of life itself. And he went away sad. Turned his back on Jesus. Why? Because he had a big pile of cash back at his house, and he didn't want to walk away from that. I mean, what, what a clear, clear demonstration of his heart. This man walked away from the grace of God because it was too expensive. He didn't want to pay for it. He didn't want to pay for it, not in the earning your salvation sense, but he didn't want to repent and do what it required of him to repent. And that's how powerful of an idol money can be. The more you have, the greater the temptation. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Basically, it's really hard for rich people to be saved. In fact, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That's scary, isn't it? Because I would imagine by, by human standards, there's some rich people in here. By global standards, pretty much all of us are rich. So what does that mean? Are we hopeless? Can any of us be saved? Money is a powerful idol, and once it has you, it won't let you go. It's not going to be easy just to turn around and walk away from it. First Timothy 6.10, the apostle Paul says this, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So Jesus said it's hard for them to become a Christian in the first place. Paul is saying here that the love of money can so capture a person that they would would walk away from Jesus. Even after having demonstrated some faith commitment, they would walk away. Now, you might have heard this verse misquoted. And the way it's often misquoted is money is the root of all evil right? And have you heard that? Money is the root of all evil. That's not what this text says. Let's look more carefully. It is the love of money that is a root of all kinds of evils. Money is morally neutral. It's a tool. Money does not have any particular moral value or content. It's just a tool. Love is a moral proposition. Love of money, that has moral value, but it's not the root, as in it's the only one. It is a root, which is there are other kinds of roots that can create evil, but it is a root. And it's not every kind of evil, but it's all kinds. So there are, he's saying there's a particular type of sin, a particular type of evil that is enabled by this root system that undergirds it all and, and enables it and supports it and feeds it and nourishes that evil. And that thing is money and it's a love of money. So it is the love of money, not the possession of it or the existence of it, but it is the love of it. So let's let's say this. Let's say comfort is a big sin for you. Uh, you know, just this, this uh, uh, inordinate need to be comforted and to enjoy comfort. Let's say that's, that's a particular heart idol for you. And so the way this works out is that you want to avoid pain as much as you can, and you want to have as much pleasure as you can, right? So this idol, this comfort idol, is like a tree. Now, as the tree, as a tree, it's got branches. And in the branches of this comfort tree, you've got things like laziness. That's comfort. Gluttony. Comfort myself with food. Pornography, comfort myself with sexual addiction or sexual uh, indulgence. Drunkenness, comfort myself with substance abuse or alcohol or whatever else. That's the tree. Comfort is the tree. You've got these different fruits on that tree of these different kinds of sin. If you're broke and you ain't got no money, then you don't have the time nor the opportunity to indulge that sin as much, do you? It's like, if you don't have much money, it's like, I ain't got time for all that stuff. I'm working all the time. I'm picking up extra shifts. I'm doing two jobs, doing whatever I can to make ends meet. You don't have the time to just sit around and indulge that sin. You're busy trying to make money to live on. But if you're rich, that's a different story, isn't it? Maybe you're rich and your, your wealth affords you the time to indulge sin. Money can buy a lot of sin and money can buy a lot of opportunity for sin. So forsaking money would be forsaking all that sin that you really enjoy. Maybe that's the rich young man's problem. It's not that he had a lot of money, therefore he is a wicked man. I wonder there's lots of rich guys in the Bible that are godly. Abraham is one. There's lots of them. It's the love of money. And the love of money, what that does, love of money means that you have money which affords you the opportunity to purchase a lot of sin. It is a root system. It is, if you're the tree, if the sin is the tree, then underneath the ground, it is soaking up all that moisture and all those nutrients, and it's this root. And the root nourishes this sinful, wicked tree. And it is the love of money that continues to nourish that sinful tree. It is a root and there's all kinds of evil that can be growing on that tree. That's what Paul is saying in 1 Timothy 6. Why is money so powerful? Because it's a root system, kind of growing beneath your feet. And there's so many other sins that it could be nourishing. Control, status, comfort, power, luxury, whatever, whatever it is. It can, it can feed and nourish all kinds of sin in your life. So with money, money tends to be the thing that, that uh, prepackages sin, bundles them together, and, so, and, and nourishes a lot of them. So the love of money produces all kinds of different sins in your life, and that's why it was so powerful. So for the rich young man, it wasn't merely, it's like, well, I'm not going to have money to buy groceries anymore. It's like, no, he, there's, there's all the things that, all the different sins that he might have been indulging in and was keeping it hidden or might not even be aware that they're sinful. But forsaking the money would have been forsaking those sins, and there was a lot of sin there. So money is the enabler, and the more wealth you have, the more opportunities to sin that will present themselves to you. Here's another quote from St. Augustine. He said, we do not realize how much we are attached to the good things of this world until they are taken from us. And that was, the, that was the very thing that the rich young ruler was being uh, presented with. So the best way to know how much you love something is how you respond when it is threatened or potentially taken away. That's how you know how much you love it. That's how Jesus loved this man. In fact, in Mark's version of this story, whenever Jesus made that comment to him, it said Jesus turned to him and loved him and said one thing you lack. Jesus loved him by exposing his idol. let me give you a few ways to tell if you're a lover of money, all right? Number one, if you're stingy with it. That's simple, straightforward enough. If you hoard money, if you hoard it to yourself, it could be just a, you know, if, you, if you're doing pretty well, money could simply be a number that was on your bank app but you enjoy watching that number grow. It could be checking your investment statements watching that number grow and just like there's, there's some, some in, inordinate pleasure that you get from that can indicate that you're a lover of money. And that's why Jesus told the man to not merely repent of the idol of money, but he told him you have to sell it. It's like you have to, you have to divest yourself of it to fully repent of it. You know, I just finished my taxes yesterday. One of the most depressing days of the year. <laughs> uh, a thought came to me that my giving statement reveals my heart. It's where Jesus said, where your treasure is, so that your heart will be also. I'm going to look at my, you know, looking at all my, here's your charitable contributions and your deductions and all that stuff. It, I'm like, this is an indicator of where my heart is. It's true for all of us. If you really wanna do some self-examination in the area of money, pull out your taxes from last year, your giving statements, and see you know, where did my heart go last year? Where's my heart in 2022? Number two, you frivolously spend a lot of money on yourself. Now, all these are things that are matters of discernment. But what's frivolous versus not frivolous? Well, that takes wisdom to discern, and that's really about your heart and leading of the spirit, but there is such a thing as sinful, frivolous spending on yourself, and if you're there, that's, that's an indicator you're your lover of money. Maybe you have a massively disproportionate entertainment budget to where so much of your money goes to things that are just indulgences and personal pleasures. Number three, you crave the status that wealth would give you or that wealthy people have. It's about maintaining an image about how people perceive you. Number four, it could be looking down on people that have less than you. One way to do this is to look down on people with contempt. Think, well, they're lesser than me. I've got, I'm, I'm richer than they are. I'm better than them. I feel superior. That's one way. Another way to look down on people who have less is to look down on them as helpless victims and you are their Messiah. Or well, you're gonna be the one that's gonna, I don't wanna give this guy a dollar or whatever. You see yourself as their savior and that's a way of looking down on people. If you feel guilty or ashamed right now, uh, take heart, because I do. <laughs> uh, take heart because I've got some great news for you. And the great news is what Jesus says next, and we'll finish up here. Verse 26. The other guys who heard this, the disciples hanging around there, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? (laughs) Who can be saved, Jesus? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Of course, Peter's like, Lord, see, look, check it out. We left our homes and followed you. (laughs) And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Isn't that where we started? How do I inherit eternal life? Jesus said, here's how. Forsake everything. Put Jesus first. Give him your highest allegiance. So initially, the words seemed pretty jarring what Jesus said in the previous section. It's like if it's easier for a camel to go through a eye of a needle, how can anybody be saved? They saw rich people as being uniquely favored by God in those days. So if these people that are uniquely favored by God can't be saved, what about the rest of us? And Jesus said, hey, it's not possible with man. It's possible with God. Once again, the lesson, it's not about what you do. It's not about what is possible with human beings, what you're able to accomplish. That's not what we're talking about here. If it were possible with man, Jesus would have had no need to die. But it's not possible with man. It's possible only with God. That's why Jesus came to die. There's not a man on planet Earth who can save himself, but Jesus Christ accomplished what we could not accomplish for ourselves. So Jesus has made a way not only for the rich man to be saved, but for anybody to be saved. God can break the power of any idol over any man's life and he can free people from the love of money or any other sin. He can free people from the love of success, from the love of approval, from the love of comfort, from the idolatry of sex, from the idolatry of a racial identity and any other kind of idol. And whatever it is that costs us to repent of that sin or repent of that idol in this life, Jesus said, you ain't seen nothing yet. You will be repaid. You will receive so much more in the life to come. That's where we believe him, though. We have to have faith that he'll bring it about. But it's not about just keeping our eyes fixed on this earthly experience. It's about seeing the bigger picture of the eternal perspective of knowing that in this life, yeah, we might have to do hard work of Repentance. And we may not want it, may not want to do that because it's difficult, because idols can have power over us. But in so doing, there is a promise that whatever it costs you to repent of your sin or your idol in this life, you will receive so much more in the life to come. And in et- in eternal life, isn't that what we're after? Isn't that what the rich young man was after? He's after eternal life. And if he would have if you would have just believed Jesus' word, he's like, yeah, you might, if, if you do this, you might, yeah, you might struggle now in this life. You might, you might have to sell everything because that's what it's going to take for you to repent. But think of how wealthy you will be for all eternity. Spiritually speaking, whatever wealth in heaven means, you will have wealth forever. That's what is available to you. That's what he has accomplished for you. And it, that's a promise. Whatever it costs us now, we will be repaid in the life to come. So I wanna finish up today by answering the question that we started with. How do we inherit eternal life? Let's make it super basic, super practical. We'll put this in crayon. How can anybody inherit eternal life? We've already seen the answer, but I wanna go over it again. Number one, acknowledge your sin. If right now you think I'm okay, if you're not a Christian or you're not sure, and you think, well, you know, I'm a good person. I'm a decent guy, and that's who God accepts? No, you're condemned. God does not accept good moral people because there ain't none. You have to acknowledge your sin, which means you have to say, I am a sinner. I have sinned against a perfectly righteous holy God, and there is no life, no hope, no nothing outside of him. Christians, we call this confession. We do it every Sunday. Every Sunday, we have a time of confession. And then having confessed our sin, we have a time where Wade leads us into an assurance of pardon. Because having confessed our sin, it's like here's a good word of hope in the gospel that Jesus has forgiven that sin and we have hope that we are are forgiven. So confession is like a prayer where you tell God, I've sinned against you, forgive me. Matt preached on this last week, the, the, uh, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And it was the tax collector who went home justified, remember that? And actually there's three, three stories in this chapter that all have the similar theme, which is, God have mercy on me, a sinner. You've got to acknowledge your sin before you can be saved. Number two, repent of your sin and believe the gospel. So repent of your sin. There may be an area of your life that you don't want to surrender to Jesus. The rich young man's issue was money, the love of money. Maybe that's your issue. It's an issue probably for a lot of us. Maybe there's some other thing that in your mind right now is really the pressing need to where if Jesus were to walk in here and put his arm around you and say, hey, let's go back here and have a word. And if Jesus were to whisper in your, hey, man, hey, sister, here's one thing you lack. Here's where an idol has got a hold of you. And here is the difficult thing that I'm going to require of you to do to repent of it. Do it. Because the reward far outweighs the cost. Do it. Whatever secret indulgence, whatever hidden idol, you can't hold anything back. Don't hold anything back. Number three, then come follow Jesus. By faith, you're looking away from yourself. You're saying, I'm gonna put my eternal destiny... In the hands of christ and i want to follow him because he knows best and jesus assures us whatever we give up to follow him whatever you have to die to to follow christ it doesn't end there you will receive back many times over what it cost you in this life so ultimately you don't lose a thing you might surrender it for a time but there will be a reward and that that far far surpasses whatever it costs you in this life you'll receive that in eternity well let's close in prayer we thank you jesus thank you father for speaking to us thank you lord jesus for identifying our idols i pray lord by right now by your spirit that you will you will reveal to us anyone in this room, whatever is that particular heart idol, that issue that is the thing we lack, reveal it to us, strengthen us, give us faith to repent. Show us what that looks like practically. Lord, if any of us are having a love for money, a sinful love of money, show us, Lord, what repentance looks like. Make it practical, Lord, so that we can, we can know that we have, to, we have to take action. We have to do something. Not to earn our salvation, but we have to demonstrate that repentance through some action. It's not just a, a feeling of grief. So, Lord, lead us by your Spirit. And within Christian community, I pray, Lord, that we can confess our sin to one another. So that we can acknowledge in community with each other that grace of God is with us. That there is grace for us in whatever sin we find ourselves in, and we can confess to one another, and then by your spirit, the wisdom of the community will will help to identify tangible action steps of repentance. And we thank you, Jesus, that you died for us, you give us life, you give us hope eternally, and that what is impossible with us, you have made possible by your death on the cross and by your life, three days later in your resurrection. And so now as we come to the table, help us to feast with our minds and our hearts being nourished, not by a root system of sin, but a root system of grace, by the bread and the wine. May we feast now to your glory. Thank you, Jesus. We pray in your name, amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksnc.com.